Thank you for joining us for the Ravenswood Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Dustin Moore. We are a Bible-believing, grace-driven church located on the north side of Chicago. As a church, we are passionate about making disciples of all people for the glory of God. If you would like more information about our ministry, visit ravenswoodbaptist.org. Now, here's Pastor Dustin. I want to invite you to join me in Joshua chapter 22 this morning. Joshua chapter 22, I'm well aware of the time, and I have a lengthy text, but I have a brief message, and so I ask that you just dig in with me for these next few moments. As we continue forward in Joshua 22, and you have that handout that you received as well, if that'll be a help to you today, by all means take advantage of that. As we continue in our study today in Joshua 22, and I ask that you just kind of settle in uh, for these next 30 minutes or so, and just give God's word your undivided attention. We got to remind, we got to be reminded today, we need to be reminded of the group of people that we saw last week at the beginning of the study. The two and a half tribes of Israel who had assisted the other nine and a half in receiving or accepting the inheritance that Moses, the Lord, had promised. These two and a half tribes, we've talked about them often in the study of Joshua. I had never heard about these two and a half tribes until I began studying this 40 years in church and nobody ever told me that these two and a half tribes live somewhere else. The tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh had been granted the inheritance to live on the eastern side of the Jordan River. The other nine and a half tribes had crossed the Jordan and gone into the western portion of the Jordan and had received their land. But these two and a half tribes were given land on the east side of Jordan because it was better for their cattle. They were, if you will, cattle ranchers. As you recall... Moses commanded that they were granted that land, but the men were required to cross the Jordan with the other nine and a half tribes to help them to secure the land. And then the two and a half tribes, the men of the two and a half tribes, could go back over Jordan to enjoy the inheritance with their family who had stayed back with children and livestock. Last week we saw the example of these two and a half tribes. The example that we as Christians, we're not necessarily Jews that are in Canaan. We're Christians who are living in our in inheritance that we've been given in the gospel. And we were reminded last week that God has invited us. He's invited you and me to partner with Him in helping others receive the inheritance of eternal life. And that you and I, that you can't do that, nor can I, if we don't personally engage the mission of God to evangelize the nation. Every Christian has a role in the mission of God to evangelize the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. On top of that, we saw last week that these two and a half tribes show us what it means to aid and assist our brothers and sisters in living out and embracing their inheritance in the gospel. For us as Christians, we often fail to understand how central this is to our Christian life, that you're not simply waiting for heaven, but one of your chief missions here on this earth, along with evangelizing the nations, is that you and I have been given the commandments of the New Testament to live the Christian life with one another, to be engaged with each other 
in life. And so, therefore, we were reminded last week that we cannot be, we cannot be healthy Christians if we isolate ourselves from the body of Christ or if we fail at engaging the church, the gathered assembly, the people of God in our rhythm of life. We cannot be healthy Christians. And so for us, this chapter, chapter 22, has said much to speak to about what these two and a half tribes did and what their example is for us. Add to that. Add to that how their example is a part of God's redemptive work in His people. It's a part of God's redemptive work in His people through all of Scripture that God's people were always called to be with one another. God's people were always called to tell the outsiders, if you will, how they could become insiders. And so today we continue in chapter 22 and we witness these two and a half tribes leaving Shiloh. It was the place where the tabernacle was. It was the place where the other nine and a half tribes had received their inheritance. And so the two and a half tribes leave Shiloh to return home. But on their way home, on their way home, they create some conflict. They create conflict. It's part of the problem of one anothering. Is when we live life with one another, we often will create conflict. And so I want you to see today four aspects of this portion of Scripture. And really, I think we'll find some edifying truth, not just for the church, but I think for marriage, for family, for work relationships. And so we start with the first breakdown in this moment of a threat of civil war. And I want you to see first off that there's a crisis created. A crisis is created. Notice with me in verse 9 and 10 here of chapter 22, and I'm going to read a lot of scripture today and give you a little bit of a running commentary before we get to application. But we see in verse 9, And the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned and departed from the children of Israel out of Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go unto the country of Gilead, to the land of their possession, whereof they were possessed according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. And when they came unto the borders of Jordan that are in the land of Canaan, the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by Jordan, a great altar to see to. Now, pause right here. The story here is extremely understandable on the surface. The, the two and a half tribes left Shiloh, which is in Canaan, which is a one-word descriptor. Canaan is the western part of Jordan, and they left there to go back to the, the land that they had received as an inheritance. Here it's described in one word as Gilead. So we've got Canaan on the west side, which summarizes all the land over there, and Gilead, which is on the east side of Jordan, it summarizes all the land there. And so they left Canaan there to go to Gilead, but they make a stop. They stop at the, at the, the passage there where the children of Israel had crossed the Jordan. And they build an altar. They build an altar there. It's one of significant size. And the indication here is it's one that an altar that you could see from a long way away. It's a very large altar. We get no indication as to the purpose of the altar, why they built the altar, what was intended. But keep going in verse 11 with me. And the children of Israel heard say, Behold, the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar over against the land of Canaan in the borders of Jordan at the passage of the children of Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, heard of it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered themselves together at Shiloh 
to go up to war against them. Now, again, you see it's rather self-explanatory. We, we, an altar's built, but the, in the building of the altar, there's a threat of civil war. The children of Israel heard about the altar. We don't know how they heard. We don't know when they heard. But they heard about it, and they, they gathered to go to war against these two and a half tribes. Now, you might be sitting there going, let me ask a couple questions here, which you should be asking, right? Number one, I think a fair question that may not be obvious but is necessary is, wasn't it, wasn't national unity a possible issue between the two and a half tribes and the nine and a half tribes? And the answer is yes. If you thought about this critically over the last several months, as we've talked about these, this divide between the children of Israel, you've got these 12 tribes split, two and a half on one side, nine and a half on the other. A necessary question is, isn't unity a possible issue? And it is because, look at the screen with me for just a moment. I want you to see the map that we have here. And here we see you've got three, you've got two and a half tribes here. So Manasseh, there is, you've got East Manasseh and West Manasseh. That's the half Manasseh and the other half. And right down in, that divides all of this is this Dead Sea, Sea of Galilee, connected by the Jordan River. And so it's very obvious that you might have these two and a half begin to feel like their own people, and these nine and a half begin to feel like their own people. So unity is definitely an issue here. Because of this body of water. It's not like you and I can just fly over like we can. It's not like we can just take a boat across. This body of water obstructs unity. Now, there's also another question that we have to ask, and that is, because you and I think in very modern worldviews and, and such like this, is why would they go to war over this matter? Why would war even be a possibility? Well, let me explain it to you. There's two reasons, actually. First off, because it was forbidden to offer a sacrifice anywhere else other than the tabernacle. And at this time, the tabernacle is located at Shiloh. You are not to offer sacrifice, and when you build an altar, you build altars for sacrifices. Leviticus 17, 18, I don't have time to read all this to you, tells the children of Israel that there is to be no altars, no sacrifices made other than at the tabernacle. You couldn't build an altar at your house and just offer sacrifice. Your sacrifice had to be offered at the tabernacle. Secondly, because the law of Moses had forbidden them from worshiping other gods. Another reason you might build an altar is an altar of worship. An altar of worship. And so, it appears to the nine and a half that this altar was built so that the, children of the, the two and a half tribes were beginning to worship maybe a false god of the Canaanites. And Deuteronomy 13, 12, again, I'm not going to read all this, tells it tells the children of Israel that if somebody does that, that you're to take a sword and you're to take their life. And so you go, why would they go to war over this? Because God commanded them to. Because you can't offer sacrifice anywhere else. Secondly, secondly, you, if, you, if you build an altar and worship of a false god, you are to fall under the judgment of God. And so here we have these, this altar built. We don't know yet why. And so the children of Israel on the side of Canaan, they are gonna, about to go to war. And so what we see happen next is we see the necessity here to vet this out. And by the way, if you were to study this on your own, Deuteronomy chapter 13 tells them they are to 
inquire, to make a search, to ask diligently. You don't just go to war. You don't just take someone's life without making sure that what is done is what you think they're doing. You're to investigate it. So wisely, the Canaanite tribes investigate this. So secondly, and very quickly today, I want you to see an accusation is presented. An accusation is presented. Look at verse 13. Bear with me. These are one of those Sundays that I'm not here to entertain you. We're digging into the Word, so bear with me. The children of Israel sent unto the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh into the land of Gilead. Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten princes of each chief of each chief house of prince throughout all the tribes of Israel. And each one was in head of the house of their fathers among the thousands of Israel. And they came unto the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh unto the land of Gilead. And they spake with unto them, excuse me, they spake with them, saying, now pause right here so we can grasp what's happening. A man named Phinehas, it's not Joshua, it's not Eleazar the high priest, it's Eleazar's son, a man named Phinehas. They send Phinehas along with some representation from all the tribes. And they go to the other side of the Jordan, to the East Jordan. Stay with me now. To the East Jordan. And they approach the two and a half tribes and notice what they say. This verse 16. Thus saith the whole congregation of the Lord. What trespass is this that you have committed against the God of Israel to turn away this day from following the Lord and that you have builded you an altar that you might rebel this day against the Lord? Is the iniquity of pure too little for us from which we are not cleansed until this day although there was a plague in the congregation of the Lord, but that ye must turn away this day from following the Lord? And it will be seeing ye rebel today against the Lord, that tomorrow he will be wroth with the whole congregation of Israel. Notwithstanding, if the land of your possession be unclean, then pass ye over unto the land of the possession of the Lord, wherein the Lord's tabernacle dwelleth, and take possession among us. But rebel not against the Lord, nor rebel against us, in building you an altar beside the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, commit a trespass in the accursed thing? And wrath fell on all the congregation of Israel, and that man perished not alone in his iniquity. Now, what happens in this moment? Here's what happens. Phineas confronts them. He brings the concern about the altar, about whether the land, about whether they built this altar in rebellion. Then he even says, it's possible that your land is, pag- is unclean because of pagan worship. And so if that's the case, then, then come over to the other side. Just let's let, and come over and get inheritance over here. But, but don't rebel against the Lord. And then he goes on to give them two examples. The one is the, the, is the apostasy at Peor, which without linking us there, it's simply the moment many years before this that the men of Israel, including Moses, by the way, intermarried with pagan Moabite women, and God's wrath fell on them, judgment fell on them for false worship. With all this, he reminds him about Achan, what happened there with Achan, the death of Achan. And so Phineas comes over to tell them, listen, if this has been done, God's wrath is going to come on Israel. Takes us to the third picture here, and that, or the third portion here, and that is where these two and a half tribes give a defense. So a defense is given. We get to a response it's lengthy, so bear with me and read along. Notice in verse 21. Then the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe Manasseh answered and said unto the heads of the thousands of Israel, and the Lord God of, and the Lord, they said this, the Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods, he knoweth, and Israel, he shall know, if it be in rebellion or if in transgression against the Lord, save us not this day. And so they start off by saying it's the Lord. 
the Lord God of gods. It's the, the sovereign knowledge that God has over their action that God knows why they built that altar. And they said, if we did it in rebellion, then kill us right now. Save us not this day. Take our life today. Don't wait any longer if we did this in rebellion. So then they explain why they built the altar. Look at verse 23. That we have built us an altar to turn from following the Lord, or to offer thereon burnt offerings or meat offering, or to offer peace offerings thereon. Let the Lord himself require it. And if we have not rather done it for fear of this thing, saying, in time to come, your children might speak unto our children, saying, what have ye to do with the Lord God of Israel? For the Lord hath made, a jo- made Jordan a border between us and you. Ye children of Reuben and ye children of Gad, and ye have no part in the Lord. So your children shall make our children cease from fearing the Lord. Therefore we said, let us now prepare to build us an altar, not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, but that it may be a witness between us and you and our generations after us, that we might do the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings and with our sacrifice and with our peace offerings, that your children may not say to our children in time to come, ye have no part in the Lord. Therefore said we, that it shall be when they should say to us or to our generations in time come that we, have, that we may say again, Behold the pattern of the altar of the Lord which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifices, but it is a witness between you and us, us and you. God forbid that we should rebel against the Lord and turn this day from following the Lord to build an altar for burnt offerings and for meat offerings or for sacrifices because the, beside the altar of the Lord our God that is before his tabernacle. Now, here is the clarity for this issue. And you might be going, man, you read that? I don't have a clue what happened. As I mentioned, the natural divide of the Jordan River, the two and a half tribes were concerned. They were concerned that the day would come when they wanted to come over to Shiloh. They wanted to come over and worship God. But the nine and a half tribes said to either the people at that time or their children later, you don't have part with us with the Lord. You're not a part of our people. And so they explained to Phineas and these representatives, we built this altar so that our children could always say to your children, we are a part, we are a part of God's people. We do worship the one and only God. And this altar is an altar of witness. We didn't build it to offer sacrifices. We didn't build it for peace offerings. We didn't build it for any other reason than to be a reminder to all 12 tribes that we all worship God together. And so in building the altar, there's a mistaken perception of why it was built from nine and a half tribes the two and a half tribes probably shouldn't have built it in the way that they did because it gave people a reason to doubt and so it created a crisis but now we see there's a crisis resolved look at verse 30 we'll be here quickly and then we'll look very very briefly at some application when Phineas the priest and the princes of the congregation and heads of the thousands of Israel which were with him heard the words that the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the children of Manasseh spake it pleased them and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said unto the children of Reuben, and to the children of Gad, and the children of Manasseh, This day we perceive that the Lord is among us, because ye have not committed this trespass against the Lord. Now ye have delivered the children of Israel out of the hand of the Lord. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the princes, returned from the children of Reuben, and from the children of Gad, out of the land of Gilead, unto the land of Canaan, to the children of Israel, and brought them word again. And the thing pleased the children of Israel. And the children of Israel blessed God. And did not intend to go up against them in battle to destroy the land wherein the children of Reuben and Gad dwelt. And the children of Reuben and the children of Gad called the altar Ed, for it shall be a witness between us that the Lord is God. What happens? The matter of conflict is put to rest. 
The children of Israel are saved from an unnecessary war. And the altar of Ed, the altar of witness, if you will, states that these 12 tribes agree that the Lord is God and that a body of water cannot, cannot divide them, that they are made one by their worship of the one true God. And so, you might sit there and go, I don't even know what that means. It's a lengthy text, and I'm going to be concise in our application today, though. There's obviously much, if I took each section, I could probably squeeze a lot of water out of this sponge. Uh, But I want to be very simple today in our application. I want to put this application in three categories for you. It's actually what I believe is our necessary categories every time we apply the word. I just don't always make it this crystal clear for you, but it's almost always there in our study of God's word. The first one is I want to I want to look at a theological application. What does this tell us about God and what God demands? The, the- theological application of this crisis is this. There should be no mistake in where our loyalties lie. There must be clarity in our worship. Let me let me Say that again. There there should be no mistake in where our loyalties lie. In that moment, when the nine and a half tribes heard of the altar, in that moment, they had mistook the worship of the other two and a half tribes because in that moment, they didn't, there was not clarity in what was going on. So there has to be clarity in our worship. Has to be clarity in our worship. What we mean by that is who we worship. And we want to be clear in defining the God that we worship. Make it clear. In fact, it was at the heart of all that God demanded of Israel. It was literally the first command. I say it to you all the time because it's paramount to our study of the Bible. Exodus 20 and verse 3, the first of the Ten Commandments is this. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. By implication, God in that command is saying, people try to find other gods for worship, but my people need to have clarity that there are to be no other gods. Now let me say this for our church, and let me just make a statement, a a declaration for us as God's people. Proper Christian theology makes clear this statement. There are no other gods. We worship the one God and Father who is the maker of heaven and earth. He is the God as revealed in the Holy Bible. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, truly God, truly man, and the Father has sent His Spirit into our hearts. The triune God is three persons of one divine substance. But there is no other God outside of the triune God. The Scriptures... I know this isn't very culturally satisfying today, but the scriptures do not permit us as Christians to be pluralists. We are not pluralists. We do not worship every supposed deity. We do not have the same God as other religions. As I stated, the God of the Christian faith that is worshipped by us is the God as revealed in the Bible. So to say that we have the same God as any other religion is to actually contradict God's own teaching 
in Scripture. On top of that, we need to also be clear that there are not many ways to God. The God we worship is not the same God that everybody else claims to worship. He's the God of Scripture. And the God of Scripture has said there is only one way of salvation. So in our moment of clarity, we need to be clear that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and life. No man, no man comes to the Father but by me. And so there needs to be clarity today. Listen, friends, we do not worship any other God other than the God of heaven as defined in the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. We have to be clear on that. You say, well, that seems very very exclusive. Well, proper biblical theology demands it. Proper biblical theology demands that we realize that we recognize today that we didn't worship the same God as other, as other religions today. We worship the one God of the Bible. And that God said there's only one way to Him, and that's through His Son, Jesus Christ. There are not a pluralistic view or means by which you may be saved. There is one way that one may be saved. So you say, well, that seems very exclusive. Let me say at the same time, Christianity is inclusive. Christianity is inclusive in that all are welcome to the gospel, but it is exclusive in that there is one God, there is one gospel, and there is one faith as revealed in the Bible. And so in that moment of Joshua 22, when the, when the two and a half tribes built this altar, the other nine and a half said, we don't worship another God. There's only one God, and Jehovah is his name. And I know that might be uncomfortable, but that is the clear teaching of Scripture. That is a clear affirmation of the church historically. Secondly, we see a practical application. And I think this is where we might find some help today as people living amongst one another. We might find some help in our marriages today. We might find some help in the workplace, for the workplace today. And that is this. It is easy for us to misunderstand the intentions of another, so approach possible conflict with charity and understanding. It's very easy for you and I to misunderstand the intentions of another, so approach possible conflict with charity and understanding. You might say, I'm, easy, I'm offended by this. Are you sure offense was meant? I've been, I've, been, I've been holding on to this for a while. It would be wise for you and I when it comes to conflict, whether it's in church, whether it's in your marriage, whether it's in family with your brother, your sister, your mom, your uncle, your aunt, your cousin, your workplace with your boss or that person that works next to you, and you go, man, I've been so easily offended. I've been holding the grudge here. Then the Christian, hear me, the Christian living through the lens of the gospel is now able to come to conflict with charity and a desire to be understanding. That's how we're to handle this. You notice what happened? Phineas didn't come in and go, we're going to cut you all to pieces right now. He said, here's what our concern is. Do you all want to speak to this? There was charity and understanding. And here we get a little bit. I don't plan to be a conflict resolution expert for you this morning. But this right here will carry you and I in a, long, a long way in our relationships. It's not just simply believe the best. It's not just believe the best. It may mean 
don't assume the worst. But it's also wise to ask necessary questions to seek out the truth of a situation because there might be some in here. We, have, we probably have a couple groups of people in here. We got some of us that really, man, we run to conflict. We're looking for somebody to just fire us up today. Or we came in like Yosemite Sam, right? Bang, bang. And there's some of us that we avoid conflict at all costs. And here's the truth. Both actually have an element of, of, of not embracing what the Scripture tells us here. The temptation is that we would avoid conflict or that we are hasty in conflict, but the Israelites did the right thing. They did the right thing. And maybe, maybe these, six port, these six statements I'm going to give you would, would help you, and I'd be glad to share it with you separately today, but it'd be, it'd be helpful to you in your marriage and in your relationships and workplace stuff. Number one, there might be a moment there appears to be an offense or a wrongdoing. So number two, don't, don't ignore it, but absolutely approach it. Here we find the Israelites state their concern. They give the other party the chance to reply to the concern. There's now an awareness of the intentions, whether good or bad. And now because there's awareness of what was meant in the motive, now a resolution can be pursued. Number six, the two parties can go forward even if healing is necessary. But what we absolutely want to eliminate is the threat of war between two people. That's what we want to do. And hear me very carefully. Listen, can I, can I call us as a church? Can I call us as a church to pursue a maturity in how we handle conflict, especially with one another? You might have had a long-standing offense by somebody in this room. You might even be sitting here and going, man, pastor, you offended me. It's very, very possible. Because we're just sinful people who make mistakes. The answer is not to avoid it. The answer is to approach it with charity and understanding. Charity and a desire to understand. And that's a practical application from this passage. The third thing, as we conclude, is I want you to see that the story of Scripture is that God sees, this is the redemptive application, God sees our false worship, our altars to other gods, and instead of going to war against us, He comes and offers peace through His Son on the cross. When I say redemptive, what I mean is from the beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture, the story of God, the unfolding story of God, is that God sees our false worship and He constantly pursues us to try to make peace. To make peace because we sinned. We've worshipped idols. we failed at worshipping. You might be sitting there today and going, man, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've sinned against God. And because we have all sinned, according to Scripture, we have all stood in need of someone to come and save us from the punishment of that idolatry. And, and, and this is actually what Jesus has done. Jesus, who's God, lived sinlessly as the God-man so that we who have sinned could be saved from the punishment of that sin. And so what Jesus does is he takes on him all of our punishment. He doesn't come and start raining down fire and damnation and wrath on, on people. No, he comes to try to make peace. Paul said he offers peace through the blood of his cross to all people. So what we get in Christ is a cross that offers freedom with God and man. We don't get a ladder from Jesus to climb to God. We get a cross that Jesus cries, 
It is finished. So in this moment of Joshua 22, we see the Israelites going to war to take the life of these possible false worshipers and these idolaters. And you and I look at that and we go, man, they, they want to go, they're going to go to war over this possible idolatry. And it points us forward to Jesus. He comes and says, I'm going to lay down my life for all the false worshipers and all the idolaters and all the sinners. Because the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. That's the intention. I don't know today if you know the saving message of Jesus. And if you don't know the saving message of Christ, today, as I mentioned, one of our pastors, one of our deacons will be down front. We'd love to take the Bible and show you, according to Scripture, how you can know Christ as your Savior, how you can be saved from eternal punishment in hell and the wrath of God being poured out on your sin, you don't have to take that because Jesus has already taken it for you. You simply get to receive it. And in all of this, in all of this, Jesus, do you remember what the Israelites said? The Israelites, as they came to the two and a half tribes, they said, we want to make sure you didn't build an altar for sacrifice. Can I just tell you, for the Christian for the Christian, there's a, a new altar, if you will. There's only one place of sacrifice. For the Israelites, it was at Shiloh, it was at the tabernacle. For you and I, it's only in the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the only place. You can't go home and build an altar of good works. You can't come to a church and build an altar of a baptism. You can't come to the church today and build an altar of communion for salvation. You can't build enough altars in your life for salvation. Jesus says there's only one altar, and that is the cross of Christ, where the Son of God died for all sinners. And so we go back to the very beginning and remind it. Christian life is exclusive. It's exclusive in what it states. There is salvation in nobody else other than Jesus. At the same time, the exclusive truth of the gospel is inclusive to all people and says you all are invited to come to the cross. You're all invited. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, please don't leave without knowing him as your Savior. Don't leave without knowing him as your Savior. In a moment when we pray and dismiss, I invite you, to come see one of our pastors and deacon down front and let them show you how you can be saved. If you are here today and you know Christ as Savior, if Jesus doesn't come to make war, then you and I don't have to go out of these doors and make war with everybody in our life. We too can be peacemakers. We too can be, we can come to conflict with a compassionate, merciful, charitable heart seeking to be restored with people. The gospel enables that. In fact, I would say, so many words, the gospel demands it. It's one of the ways we're most like Christ and how we work with one another. Thanks for listening today. If you're listening for the first time, we would love to hear from you. Maybe you have a question about the gospel of Jesus. If so, we'd like you to send us an email at hello at ravenswoodbaptist.org. If you're a regular listener to our podcast and you would like to donate to the media ministry and outreach ministry of Ravenswood, your gift would allow us to do more in an effective way to get the gospel out. Thank you for partnering with us in ministry in Chicago and around the world.